He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Amen. Every team has a naysayer, a negative Nancy, a Debbie Downer, an Eeyore. Whether we're talking about the United Nations or a school board or an after-school chess club or a family planning the next week's dinners, someone on that team is proficient at shooting ideas down. And someone who shoots ideas down can feel like a real buzzkill, can't they? The chess club is going to order some t-shirts, and so they come up with some logos and some color combos, and one person has all the reasons why each one of those color combos won't work, won't be a good idea. The family sets out the calendar and is planning next week's dinners, but one person is all too quick to point out that Thursday night, we can't have pizza because we had pizza on Tuesday night, and that's just not going to work. Every team has someone who takes it upon themselves to shoot ideas down. And it can feel like raining on the parade. But really, whoever does that, if they do it in good faith, if they have good intentions, of course, that's a very useful person to have on your team. We'll see why. In Paul's letter to the church, the gathering of Christians in the Roman city of Thessalonica. In these verses, it sounds like Paul is a real buzzkill because he's writing these words during a time which historians still call the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Roman Empire is relatively stable at this time. Trade is really good. The economy is really good. There's relative military peace, and people are saying, wow, isn't this nice? Peace and safety are with us. Things are going well. Let's see how long we can keep this going, the Romans were saying. And so say you were a Christian in Thessalonica. You show up at church. You hear these readings of doom and gloom. You hear the the teachings of sins, corruptions. You hear how there's a judgment day and how there's heaven and hell. But you look around and you see things are kind of fine. People seem happy. Doesn't seem like a lot of bad stuff is going on. Seems a little strange. There's a dissonance between what we're hearing in the Bible and what we're seeing out there, the Thessalonians were saying. They were confused. And society was confused about them. Society was looking at these Christians who were talking about doom and gloom, fire and brimstone, sins, corruption, and all that stuff. And they were like, you guys are so weird. Society was criticizing the Christians, making fun of them, and persecution was not far behind. Soon the Thessalonians would have to suffer for what they believed. And so they're anxious. They have some anxiety. They pen this letter to Paul and ask him a bunch of questions. Paul, one of the questions was, is it true that Jesus is coming back? If so, when? Because it doesn't seem like right now. It doesn't seem like Judgment Day is very close, the Thessalonians were saying. And so Paul writes this letter back to the Thessalonians, answering a bunch of his questions. Now, what do you notice about the way Paul answers that question? When is Jesus coming back? He says, 
Brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Don't you just love that? Thessalonians want to know when is Jesus coming back. Paul is saying, I'm not going to talk to you about that. I'm not going to answer that question. First of all, Paul is saying, because I can't. I can't answer that question. When is Jesus coming back? What I can tell you are the same words that Jesus himself said, that the day of the Lord, the judgment day, when Jesus comes back and makes all things new and brings us to heaven, that's going to come like a thief in the night. Now, if I'm going to come rob your house, I'm not going to, this is not a threat, but if I were going to do it, I would want to do it at a time when you least expect it. If I told you when I was coming, that would kind of defeat the purpose. Then you would uh, make sure you're locked and ready, right? Thieves don't want you to know when they're coming to rob your house. That's the point. Jesus is not some immoral thief, of course, but the point of the comparison is it's going to happen when you least expect it. It's going to be like, Labor pains, Paul said. Paul himself was not a pregnant woman, nor had he ever been, but it's pretty well established that when labor begins, it can be very unexpected. It can be very surprising. And so if a couple, a couple is expecting a baby, if the, if the wife is pregnant and she's nearing the, the ninth month of her pregnancy, probably not a good time for the husband to start any projects that he won't be able to have interrupted, right? Those labor pains come, and he's got to close out Call of Duty. He's got to shut it down because they need to get in the car, and they need to go to the hospital. Paul is saying people will be so invested in peace and safety, they won't realize that they're going to have to give it up when the day of the Lord comes. You will have to give up peace and safety. Now that seems like a downer. That seems like a buzz kill. That seems like the opposite of what we want to hear. The Thessalonians are anxious about the things that are happening around them and the future. And what does Paul do? He seems to pile on to their anxiety by saying, oh, just when you think things are good, that's when Jesus is going to come back. So don't get too comfortable. Now, the Thessalonians were living in the Pax Romana. Things were relatively peaceful. Would anyone say that we are living in the Pax Americana. Would anyone say that there's a lot of peace and safety right now? I don't think so. Thanks to advances in technology, you are constantly, constantly up to date on the terrible things that are happening all across the world. Thanks to technology, you know right away when some terrible things are happening, even in your own community, things that you would never find out about if you didn't have this technology. So I wouldn't think that any of us actually believes that there is peace and safety right now. We'll put it to you this way. Let's say a young man really, really wants to get married. He's so invested in finding a wife because he is convinced that when he does, all of his problems will cease. That when he gets married, 
fortune will smile upon him. He will no longer have anything to worry about. But until then, he's obsessed with it. Or let's say there's a woman who is very concerned about her health. She embarks on a health journey, exercising more, making modifications to her diet. But it's not so much about the number on the scale as it is about her proving her dignity to herself. She's convinced that this is how she needs to establish her worth, by looking better, by being healthier. Well, let's say that there's a retired gentleman. And he no longer has a full-time job, so he devotes himself to volunteering in his community. He is there for his family at every moment, not just because he wants to be helpful, but because if he's not helpful, he doesn't know how to live with himself. He's not just trying to be useful, he's trying to prove that he is useful to himself. He's trying to prove to himself that people still want him around. And each of these people, let's say that they come to church. Each of these hypothetical people come to church and they hear about Jesus coming one day. Judgment day is coming and they think, well, Jesus can't come back anytime soon. Not while I'm working on this project. Not while I'm trying to find someone to marry. Not while I'm still embarking on this journey. Jesus can't interrupt that. I haven't achieved peace and safety yet. Brothers and sisters, maybe we don't believe that we live in a time of peace and safety, but maybe the lie you and I believe is that peace and safety in the world is possible. If we just make the right changes to ourselves, the right modifications to our behavior, maybe then we can have peace and safety. That same technology that tells you about all the terrible things that are happening across the globe is also where people seem to be expressing great deals of outrage. There seems to be a lot of pressure right now to voice your anxiety about the state of the world, to, to express your outrage about the behavior of some people. And what's behind that pressure? Don't you find when you, when you read or when you see certain people's expression of outrage, behind that is the belief that if so-and-so group just did such and such, then we would be good, but they're not. And that's the reason why we don't live in a utopia. These are all lies, brothers and sisters. Why is a naysayer such an asset to a group? Why is it so helpful to have a person on the chess club team saying that is a stupid shirt combo? Why is it helpful to have someone who shoots down ideas? It's because some ideas won't work. And it's better to shoot it down in a meeting, right, than to commit to it and spend a lot of money and spend a lot of time doing something. Why is Paul also all too happy to pop the bubble of peace and safety? Why, does Paul, why is Paul all too happy to appear like an internet troll in the comments saying, ah, the Pax Romana is not that great? Why is Paul such a downer? It's because these lies won't work. The problem is much deeper than behavior modification. Your problem is much deeper than you just mastering a couple habits and then you'll be good. The problem is much deeper than just so-and-so group has to stop doing such-and-such. No, Paul is very honest 
The real problem is sin's corruption on the world and on yourself. And God's wrath that sin deserves. The problem is not that this world is just out of reach of utopia and we just have to make a couple changes. The problem is that this world is completely corrupted by sin and is destined for destruction. But that doesn't mean that we're without hope. Because that's where Paul goes next. He says, you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. That's what he says about you. We have different ways of saying the same thing. If someone is brought up to speed, if someone is in the know, Paul's favorite metaphor for someone who has the information is someone who is in the light. He says, you are no longer in the dark. That is, you are no longer in the dark about the state of the world, about the state of your soul. You are no longer in the dark about sin. You know what's really going on. But Jesus has brought you into the light. Jesus has revealed to you what's really going on with the world. Jesus has revealed to you what your own problem really is because Jesus has revealed to you how he has saved you. Praise the one who breaks the darkness with a liberating light. Jesus does not just unfold the right info for you to have. He doesn't just bring you news that you know ahead of time. But he wins your heart. He converts you. He delivers the gospel into your heart to bring you into God's wonderful light. Jesus is the light of the world, and you are in Christ. The light no darkness can overcome. Jesus has saved you from the wrath of God by suffering all of God's wrath in your place on the cross. Jesus has saved you from the destruction that is coming for the world on Judgment Day by letting his body be destroyed on a cross and laid in a tomb. Jesus guarantees your final victory. He guarantees that Judgment Day will be a happy day for you because it's not the day you are judged for your sins. It's the day you are rewarded with the heaven that Jesus has won for you. But that's not to say Jesus gives us every single detail. Jesus doesn't tell us when. He says that day is coming like a thief in the night. That day is coming like labor pains on a pregnant woman. You don't know when, you just know that it is coming. And the future knowledge of Jesus coming means that you can live through the present no matter what it brings. That's what Paul goes, says to the Thessalonians next. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we be belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Awake or asleep? Sober or drunk? Battle ready and prepared? Or, by contrast, unprepared? Paul weaves together three metaphors with all the same purpose. He says, let's be awake. Now, I'm going to be honest with you for a second. Most mornings, I engage in utter warfare with myself. The alarm goes off, and I have to think that my wife probably sees this happen. I go up, and, I, and I'm looking at myself in the bathroom mirror, kind of like a zombie, because I'm doing battle in my heart. Do I go back to bed, or do I wake up and start my day? And I have to admit to you, brothers and sisters, the former usually happens. I usually go back to bed. But then when I make that decision, what happens? Certain things don't get done. The dogs don't get walked. Uh, the kitchen doesn't get cleaned. My usual morning routine won't happen unless I get up at that time. Brothers and sisters, Paul is saying it's time to get up. The sun is up. It's morning time for us who are in Christ. Don't go back to bed. Don't go back to sleep and ignore all the things that you know now. You know that Christ is coming. You know that earthly means of peace and safety aren't going to last. You know that it's not worth your time to dive into efforts to manufacture your own peace and safety apart from Christ. You know that while it's day, we should be doing everything we can to strengthen our relationship with Jesus. It's daytime. Time to work. It's time to make the most of every opportunity to grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is, to grow in our relationship, and also to make the most of every opportunity to share what we know, to live what we know. We should be sober. You probably know other passages in the Bible where God talks about a Christian's attitude toward alcohol, how we should approach this substance with wisdom and with, with kindness, with goodness in our hearts. You know that God is not a fan of getting drunk for getting drunk's sake, but Paul is using drunkenness here as a metaphor. Because someone who is drunk is not aware of the facts. Hours can pass, like minutes. They can think that they are a wonderful driver when the second they step behind the wheel, they're putting lives at risk. There's a real danger sometimes to a drunken person losing a grip on reality. So brothers and sisters, let's not lose a grip on reality. Paul is saying let's be sober to the facts, the facts of sin and grace. The fact that we are sinful and in need of salvation, but the fact that we have that salvation from Jesus. Let's not pretend that the reality is anything different. Let's be sober to the, to the real facts that there are people around us who need us to live our faith, who need our encouragement, who need our love. Because Paul says, you are battle ready. You have two things, he says in this lesson, and neither of them are offensive. They are both defensive. He says, you're wearing a helmet. You're wearing a breastplate. 
Why? Because you're on the battlefield. The battlefield is not a great place to be drunk. The battlefield is not a great place to lie down and take a nap. The battlefield is where you have your wits with you. You are aware of what's going on because there's, there's chaos, right? But we don't wage war. We don't do violence. We don't hate people. The war that we wage is a, a spiritual war. We do battle by loving, not by killing. We do battle by serving, by being there for people, not by attacking them. You know what's a real downer is if you're trying to get something done on a team and someone's really good at shooting every idea down, but when that really hurts, when that's really a bummer, is when they have nothing to share in response, no alternatives to give. They're just shooting ideas down. If all Paul had to say was, yeah, peace and safety in this lifetime is not possible, if that were the main message, then yeah, that would be a downer. If we Christians, if the only thing we had to share is don't put your trust in this world, don't put your trust in, in human efforts or in people or in influencers, if that's the only thing we had to say, then yeah, we would come off like a bunch of pessimists. But we do have an alternative. We have the best alternative. We tell people, we tell each other, Paul says, that don't trust in this life for peace and safety, but trust in Christ. Because in his name, peace and safety aren't just possible. In Christ, peace and safety are not just barely out of reach, but in Christ, you have it already. In Christ, you have peace between you and God. You have the safety of knowing your sins are forgiven. You have the safety of knowing that anything that happens, no matter how terrible, is not God punishing you for your sins. That's the alternative to take refuge in the love of Christ. Paul says, meet people with that. Tell people about that. Don't just shoot down their hopes for peace and safety in this life, but give them the peace and safety of Christ. Encourage one another with these words. Amen.